One of the questions that I really wanted to ask you guys is what you've gotten out of this class. Um, I know that when we first started, the hall was packed, and two weeks later, it shrunk half its size. And I think people came expecting something more um, catechetical, more directly catechetical. You know, speaking about Jesus, and and you know that I'm not. I think you all know that I am not shy to go there. We're ending on the Gospels at Saint. As a matter of fact, by the way, I would encourage you guys to go online to listen to the. To, we're doing. We just finished Matthew and started John. I think you'll be blown away, particularly with what we did with John. Um, I've never done a God. I've read them on my own, but I've never taught them. And I'm so aware that when we um, hear the Gospels through the year, we always hear them in pieces. We hear parts. We don't put a Gospel together. And when you do put a Gospel together, you, you come out of that with a different level, a different depth of understanding, I think, when you hear fragments all year long. I think that was true for Matthew, and it was particularly true when we started John. So you guys may just click onto that and listen to the audios because I think they're really good. But one of the questions that I want to ask you guys, what have you gotten out of this? Because you know that we're doing literature, you know that it that the real reason for my doing this is that I believe that Christ is in the world. If you read the Gospels, it's 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 sort of amazing to see that some people see what Christ is doing. A lot of people don't. The, the religious leaders do not see what he's doing. They just don't see. In fact, the, very, the good that he does, they see as evil. So it's a serious question how we see. You know that that's been fundamental to certainly what I wanted to do you know, with us together, is to help us see, find Christ in the world so that we don't just think that he's there in church, which to me is essential, but we're missing something if we don't find him in the world, if we don't see him and work in ourselves and others. So it's been a constant wonder to me why you guys are still here. I would love, I would be honestly, I would love to hear from each of you. I want to meet with Father Flynn. I'll meet with him, I think, at the end of the month to talk with him about getting back in a classroom. And I, as I said last week, I. I, I think it would be good at, at that point to go to the Gospels because I think it might draw people in. If, if we did Matthew and Luke, or I mean John, the way we're doing here, and then get back to literature, to go back to um, Moby Dick and Hawthorne and Dostoevsky and Faulkner and finish up for, for anybody who still has the patience, patience or endurance to go on. but. But I would love to hear from you guys, you know, what your thoughts on that are. Um, I want to get back into a classroom to do Matthew and John, maybe, maybe Revelation, and then return because you know that the great concern in my mind and heart are to get us in the world with Christ. To, so I'm asking that seriously, what your thoughts are. Number one, what you've gotten out of the class, um, and two, what your thoughts are about getting back into a classroom and 
um, and starting with the Gospels and then returning to the literature that we've done. We've done. We're a large way through the whole literary tradition, which to me is the whole Catholic, the ground of tradition beneath the Catholic Church. We still have a little bit to go. Um, in my mind, it would be Moby Dick and Scarlet Letter and Dostoevsky and um, T.S. Eliot, The Murder in the Cathedral, which is about the martyrdom of... Uh, um, Who's the God, bishop? Who's the martyr in? Um, it's Thomas. Thomas Beckett, the martyrdom of Thomas Beckett. It's a play in which Eliot is actually going into um, um, Thomas Beckett and dealing, wrestling, wrestling with the whole question of martyrdom. Why am I doing this? Am I doing it for myself? Are the good acts that we sometimes do really more for ourselves than for others when we serve? When we think we're serving our families, our husbands and wives, our children, our work. You know, that's Eliot, and so we we would come into the modern world and. About Faulkner. Faulkner, I think I mentioned him. No, you didn't. Charles <laughs> Somebody help me with my wife, please. <laughs> No, no, I'm not going to ask that because I know most of you are going to jump on her side. Um, anyways, drop, I would love to hear from you guys on, on both of those questions, okay? So if you could take a few minutes. Um, hey, I saw you come on and I've got a picture here, but I don't have, I mean, it's a frame, but I don't have an image. Are you, is your, is your camera on? Um, yeah, I'm having a problem. I can't figure out how oh, to fix it. Just but I can hear you. Okay, just good. Audio. Good, good. Just so long as... Okay, let's... Did you start? Oh, you did already. Wow. Um, let's start. Um, anybody, anybody have any prayer requests tonight? By the way, it's good to see you all. Kay, I'm glad you're here. Connie, sorry I was busy with Melody, but I'm glad you're here and glad you're all well. Um, by the way, because I, I, I don't think I'd forget this at end, but I know you're all, I know you know that the freeze is coming, so take care, take care. Last year was a, was an ordeal, so be careful this year. Any, any prayer requests? We've got a wonderful, Bob? we've got a wonderful prayer. Yeah, go ahead. I told you a couple of weeks ago about Pam with COPD. She thought she told her family she thought she was going to die. She passed away last week. Wow! So she knew. So I'd like to add her prayer for pray for her soul and for her family. What's her last name, Melody? I don't know. But it's I Pat. No, it's That's a, okay. a friend oh, of Pam. my. Or it's my my neighbor's sister. So Pam. Pam. Okay. Thank you for and asking. Hey, I was thrilled to hear about Denise. I'm so happy that she's feeling yep. good. That yep. is yep. wonderful. Yep. Thank you. Thank you very much for your prayers. Well, yes. We're keeping them up. Yes. You are Thank a, you. You are a special group. You are a special group. Okay. See? Pray for the people who are homeless. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Approaching yep, yep. Anybody else? Anybody Okay, and this has also been on my mind. I keep seeing stories about the poor, uh, starving children in um, Afghanistan and Ethiopia 
I mean, it's just devastating. So I'd like to pray for those for those children. Yeah. I'm thanks. We will. I'm glad. I'm genuinely glad you asked. I get a little bit upset. Sorry. I get a little bit upset when we pray for people in foreign countries um, without doing something. Um, I, I, that, that's really a sort of sore point with me. Um, Suzanne's been actively involved in looking at um, programs and we're, we try to be careful where we donate our money because there's some pro... So I'm worried that some programs take the money that we give and use them for administrative costs. So we're very careful to select programs where the money actually goes to the people who need it, particularly in in uh, in countries where the kids have been exiled or are starving or you know live in horrific horrific. I just it. I don't want. You should not have said that. <laughs> I could get me going here. You we know, are controversial. We well, we are so spoiled in this country. You know, we have so much wealth. We're so affluent. The greater and and people want to get here to America, and so many Americans are condemning America. You know, we have so much to be grateful for. I just I, I the attitude in America right now is so divided. You know, I, I wish we were more grateful for what we did have. Do have. And um, while we look out for the interests of the rest of the world, you know, it's just uh, um, because the rest of the world, and the irony is, I think I mentioned this sometime in the last couple of weeks, when our kids were involved in those programs that would send church groups to South America to build homes, they always came back saying how happy the kids were, you know, in poverty, that... um, we, we spend so much time not being grateful for what we have when the misery around the world is great. And the irony is that so many kids in poverty are happier than our kids here. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot to look at there to take care of. But Kay, I see you. It's good to see you. <laughs> it always is. It always is. I finally figured out. Where's David? Oh, he's busy. Busy. You tell that guy to get here where he belongs. That's from that's from me. That's from me. Um, the, the the men are coming. <laughs> the, the men are coming under attack in this section. It's really important for the men. Mike's not going to be here tonight. It's really important for the men to be around on this part of the in this segment of our work together. <laughs> God. Oh God. Okay. Let's let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself, your presence through the day. Um, we're in ordinary time. The, the, the readings, the last couple of readings have, have been um, um, reminding us of, particularly Paul's in this last weekend, how important love is that faith and hope are nothing. I mean, we look at religious communities today that raise faith above love. Um, you made it clear that Christ's love is greater than everything. Hope and faith are going to disappear. When people get to heaven, they're not going to exist. They're in the kingdom. Everything they've hoped for, everything they've had faith for is there. Love doesn't stop. It is the one most important thing in our life. So, 
um, and it always involves a cross. So I ask um, that all of us um, be given a special grace of love, um, increase um, um, the graces of self-restraint, of self-discipline, of self, particularly of self-denial. Help each of us put ourselves away so that we can open ourselves to make a place for more of you and bring more of you to all that we do with each other. Um, help us to do this in earnest. Ask a special grace for Melody's friend Pam. Um, receive her into your kingdom. I, we don't know uh, much about her except for what Melody said, but um, if there's a time in purgatory, receive her, forgive her, wash away her sins um, so that she can know the joy that all of us long for in this life and that's always sort of put off by what we do. Welcome her into joy, um, even if it means a time in purgatory. And also we offer special prayers for the children in Afghanistan and Ethiopia. I want to include that to children across the world, maybe even in some way even in our country. Um, being in an affluent world in so many ways makes it tougher on kids who are wealthy. One of the Beatitudes who was who are not who are wealthy, which who are wealthy. Um, one of the Beatitudes is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, that's not about material poverty. It's about spiritual poverty. That the people without you are impoverished. And um, so often, so many kids who are wealthy are far more likely to be without you than impoverished kids. Poor kids know they need something. Rich kids too often don't know that. So a prayer for the kids in Afghanistan and in Ethiopia um, in impoverished areas across the world. I want to make a special prayer for kids in our world because I think our kids here are in some ways more desperately in need because of their wealth. Um, it's easier to forget you or neglect you if we're comfortable. We offer these prayers. The people who are facing the freeze. Oh, um, ask, ask for um, um, a special blessing on our community here um, and here in the East Coast for these um, winter periods of freeze. We're looking at something coming in the next week. Watch um, over everybody here. Um, <laughs> let your angels be busy. Um, helping people to be prudent and careful and safe, particularly where any of them face unsafe conditions, the homeless, those who don't have shelter, and those who don't have food. So be with us, please. Um, I ask for a blessing on all those prayers that are unspoken tonight in all of our hearts. We ask these trusting that our prayers are strengthened by all that we do together you get a larger body, um, our prayers carry a greater weight than they would in some ways. Um, how good it is to have these moments with you. Um, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen.
Okay, let's um, um, let's go to dry salvages. I'm gonna I'm gonna send something to you that I put together on the settings of the of the four quartets because we've not gone onto them, gone into them. I've not wanted to get scholarly about these things, but I think it would probably be good if you I put together some things that I've taken from online and from things that I know about the quartets. Um, I, my hope is that it'll help you see that there's a lot more going on because the four quartets um, is, um, they're not an easy body of poems to read and they don't deal explicitly with Christ. They, they, He's at the center of every one of those poems, but he's he's dealing with him. He's just like Shakespeare. Shakespeare's dealing Wintersdale, Pericles, Lear. He, you know, we've talked about this. Shakespeare's dealing with a, an audience that's lost its faith. He's got to speak to it to move them. Um, when all of their defenses are up. And they're not going to hear anything about Christianity anyway. How do you, how do you deal with people like that? So, Eliot's dealing with the same kind of world. We we in the nineteenth century we turned away, pretty rat rat. Eighteenth nineteenth century we turned away from our Christian past. Twentieth century is the first period in history, in which people see themselves as being particularly modern and want to create a new world. They believe if you get rid of Christianity, it'll help. You, you all know that from what's going on politically, the cancel culture and all of that. We live in a world, we, we believe, that rests on the sciences and that if we can only get rid of these religious superstitions, we can... So one of the problems facing Christians today, like the Christians when just after Christ came, what do they do in a world that doesn't want to hear? So, so much of what we've been doing has to do with writers you know, who are, who see something divine in the world and try to make it clear to us. Um, so Eliot's doing that. Each one of the locations, Burnt Norton, um, East Coker, Dry Savages, Little Gidding, each one of those is a particular place. Um, there's a history to it. It's one of the ways in which Eliot is trying to root his poem in history, in time. Um, Burnt Norton was a manor. Um, it was actually burnt down. East Coker was a community, a village in England. Um, um, Little Gidding was a place in which people gathered to worship. It was a family. It was a home. So there's a history to each one of these. One of the ironies of Burnt Norton is that it was burned down. And the man who lived in, in this extraordinary manner um, may have set fire to it accidentally or on purpose. He may have been suicidal. We don't know. It's interesting to me that Eliot would have taken a, a, a manner like that because England's known for its upper-class prestige. That he would have taken a manner like that that burned down by a man who was super might have been suicidal, is one of the ways he has of reminding us that there's something violent in the world going on. He alludes to things like that. He, the, in Little Gidding, we're going to be taken into the war, the Second World War, but he never dwells on violent scenes the way, the way say, Shakespeare does. So the settings are real. They're meant to be taken seriously. Each one is identified with a certain place. 
and with a certain element. Air, fire, earth, water are the basic elements. Each one of his poems revolves around one of those elements. Okay. So we're starting Dry Sauvages. The Dry Sauvages was a group of walks just off the eastern coast. Um, so of all the four quartets, it's the one that's most clearly associated with America off our coastline. Okay. So the beginning of Dry Sauvages. I do not know much about gods, but I think that the river is a strong brown god, sullen, untamed, and intractable patient to some degree at first recognized as a frontier, useful, untrustworthy, as a conveyor of commerce, because we tend to take everything in nature and see it in terms of how it can benefit us. What we can do to use technology to make that serve us. And you, you know how alien that is, how contrary that is to Homer, because you remember in Homer, nature was where the gods were. When people thought they could master nature, they created problems for themselves. I, that's the great theme of Jurassic Park movies, if you've seen those movies, that man thinks he can conquer nature, and every time he does, he ends up being beaten back by it. Useful and trustworthy as a conveyor of commerce, then only a problem confronting the builder of bridges. The problem once solved, the brown god is almost forgotten by the dwellers in cities. Ever, however, implacable, keeping his seasons in rages, destroyer, reminder of what men choose to forget, unhonored, unpropitiated by worshippers of the machine, but waiting, watching, and waiting. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom. Remember, fire, air, earth, and water are elements of everything in nature. We're connected by them. So even if we don't feel an immediate connection with a river, the river runs through us because water runs through us. We're a part of it. We are one with nature. We, God created us in it. We're all, there's an affinity uh, between all of us, all things in nature. So they're always there. His rhythm was present in the nursery bedroom, in the rank um, elanthus of the April dooryard, in the smell of grapes on the autumn table and the evening circle in the winter gaslight. The river is within us, the sea is all about us. The sea is the land's edge also. The granite into which it reaches, the beaches where it tosses its hints of earlier and other creation. The starfish, the horseshoe crab, the whale's backbone, the pools where it offers to our curiosity, the more delicate algae and the sea anemone. It tosses up our losses, the torn seine, the shattered lobster pot, the broken oar, and the gear of foreign dead men. The sea has many voices, many gods, and many voices. The salt is on the briar rose, the fog is in the fir trees. The sea howl and the sea yelp are different voices often together heard. The wine in the rigging, the menace and caress of wave that breaks on water the distant rote in the granite teeth and the wailing warning from the approaching headland are all sea voices and the heavy heaving groaner rounded homewards and the seagull. Remember what I said before he, take, he was greatly influenced by the um, French symbolist. He will take a series of images of very concrete things and string them together. 
but I mean, so we're he- but remember, all of these are tied together by this sense that all these things are interconnected. So they're not just discrete and unrelated. He sets them before us, and we hear all these concrete things: the menace, the crescent wave, the rigging, the you know, the whining, the granite tea, all of it. But all of them are voices that are related. Do we hear the underlying connection? Do we hear, in poetry we do, remember the still point was connecting everything in Burton Norton. Are we aware of the underlying connection, the, what relates them all to each other, what, what relates us to them? We can see that. What anemone, what algae, what fish in the ocean is aware of is unity with everything in creation. The only thing in creation capable of doing that is man. He's close to God in doing that. Is that clear? The wine and the rigging, the menace and caressive wave that breaks on water, the distant road and the granite teeth, and the wailing warning from the approaching headland are all sea voices, and the heaving groaner rounded homeward and the seagull. And under the oppression of the silent fog, the tolling bell measures time, not our time, rung by the unhurried groundswell, a time older than the time of chronometers, older than time counted by anxious, worried women lying awake calculating the future, trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future. Between midnight and dawn, when the past is all deception, the future, futureless. Before the morning watch, when time stops and time is never ending, and the ground swell that is and was from the beginning clangs the bell. That's the first voice. Remember, each quartet is a different instrument, a different variation on a theme, and each each quartet has five parts, each of which is treating the theme of that one quartet from a different perspective. Part two begins, where's there an end of it? The soundless wailing, the silent withering of autumn flowers. It'll go on, okay? Okay. Winner's Tale. Um, I want to quickly, as quickly as I can, just review what we did with Pericles. Remember, I thought that one of the beauties of the poem of Pericles, the play, is that in that play, unlike any other Shakespeare wrote, um, we get to play through Gower, the narrator, who's telling a story about Pericles, who's a man who spends his life in exile, his entire life. Um, He's exiled from his people, Um, he gets married, he loses his wife, thinks he does, just when she delivers a baby and thinks he loses, well, he gives up his child to be raised by um, Cleon and Dionysia. But in Pericles, it seemed to me, Shakespeare's showing us a man um, in the world, but not of it. And I made the statement last time that it seems to me one of the beauty of Pericles is that Pericles himself escapes, what I, the way I put it, the degrading fact of being a child of his age. It's the plight, it should be the plight of Catholics that um, if we grow up because we don't feel wanted or 
we don't feel as if we belong. The world will do everything it can to make us feel we belong. Well, we do belong. The world's our home for a time. But that feeling's not strange because this is not our home. Our home is elsewhere. So, according to St. Augustine and Thomas and the saints and the church, Christ, we're in exile. We're moving. Our home is elsewhere. We have a work to do, whatever that work is, as we move towards that home. And you know the play ends with that extraordinary recognition scene between um, Pericles and Marina and those words where he looks at his daughter and can't believe he's looking at his daughter. He says, um, thou that begettest, thou that, thou that begettest him that did beget thee, thou that begettest him that did beget thee. She is giving him life, the young girl that he gave life to. There's a wonderful sense that um, there's a rebirth for both of them in that moment, that so something is being given back. That they're, and, and, and it's amazing because whatever life they're being given right now has a spiritual dimension. It's a little bit like Nicodemus when Nicodemus goes to Christ and says, how can you be reborn again? <laughs> you can't go back into your mother's womb. And Christ talks about the rebirth in the spirit, that something happens to involve us in another order. There's another dimension of meaning going on. Um, Pericles belongs to that group of plays called Romances. They are all dealing with miracles. I call them sacramental because there's, they, they remind me of the sacraments, that they all deal with suffering and pain, but they all bring some extraordinary joy out of the suffering. Those are Paul's words, and they're so appropriate to describe these plays. People are caught up in some extraordinary suffering. I think it's going to be greater in, here in Wintersdale than uh, Pericles, but you'll have to let me know what you think. But out of that great suffering comes a joy infinitely greater. Um, Pericles um, um, picked up the Job thing again. Why does God let all this bad happen to good people? Because you know that everything that Pericles does tries to be virtuous. The same is with Thesa and Marina. And it seems to me one of the things he's showing us is that where people are virtuous, this is so crucial to this play, where people are virtuous, even when they're facing horrible dangers or persecution. Antiochus persecutes Pericles. He forces him to go into exile. When people are forced to deal with awful things and they remain virtuous, their virtue is an opening for God because God himself is good. When, when people struggle to be good, even if we fail, but we're struggling constantly, some good is coming into the world through us. And one of the questions that I posed to you last week was a serious one in view of our modern view of life is, what happens if you take away any sense of honor or virtue? And we live in an age like that. If we're products of evolution and we don't know where we came from or we're just animals or product of blind forces, who, who, who gives any importance to honor or virtue? And if you're lacking those, what help do we have <clears throat> to be good? So our age is a, a strange age in that way. Um, Pericles is dealing with the Job thing. What ha why does God allow this and what happens? And it's a reaffirmation of the truth that Job learned. 
that God is always there. If you've read Job, you know that God comes down on Job pretty hard. He, he supports him against his friends, but he says, who are you to question me? Were you there when I created the, the whale or the horse or the, you know, the hippopotamus? By the way, have you guys seen the movie um, Secretariat? If you want to watch a good, we just watch it. We've seen, we haven't seen it for years, but we watch it. I forgot. A, she, there are those passages from Job where she's describing God, speaking about the horse and the power. And if you've watched the movie, you know that what the, the amazing things that Secretariat does. Um, and the theme of exile. Um, Christ came here and said, "Man has no place. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head." Christ comes here in exile. He's in exile. He joins man, his creation, here in exile because man has been separated from God. He's trying to help man find his way back home. Okay. Um, okay, let me stop. Just I want to get to Winterstale. Any questions about Pericles or any comments? I'm so glad to hear you all enjoyed it. Um, lots of people don't like the play. They, you know, after after the thunder and Titanic explosions and Lear and Macbeth and Hamlet and they can't make sense of it. it um, I just don't think they're reading it well. But anyway, I'm so glad to hear that you guys enjoyed it. It's really glad, Melody, that you enjoyed it as much as you did. Um, any comments before we leave? Pericles behind. Last look back. Any reflections? Bob and Karen, you weren't here. Do you have any last thoughts about it? Did you, did you, or any last thoughts or comments you want to make before we leave it? Well, I listened to the, the recording from last week, and my thought on uh, Marina was that, um, on, on women and Marina, was that... Um, Marina was not given a lot of choice in her life of what happened to her. And um, and she's associated with the sea. Well, that's strength. And, and strength to maintain her virtue, even though all these things were happening to her. And in regard to that, compared to a man who has a lot of choices, he's got a lot more to deal with. To, to worry about the regrets of any choices he makes. So I, I just think that it's a two-edged sword. But um, yeah, I, my thought on Marina was when you said she's associated with the sea and not the shores was that's, you know, what do we associate the sea with? Strength and maybe, you know, conflict. And she had both of that. So yeah. that was all I had to ask. You so, see that okay. as being true for both of them, right? For Marina and Pericles. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, remember, I mean, we've talked about the sea a number of times since we read the Odyssey. And then Dante, who who uses that sea image a good bit, that the sea is always an image of death. It's The sea is an image of where we don't belong. That's not our home. Our home is on land. When, in Moby Dick, the Pequod leaves the land, and, and it's at sea where everything unfolds. So it's a place of adventure, it's a place of uncertainty, um, it's a place of dying. Um, it's not our home, uh, people die there. I mean, in our opening poem, 
Eliot talks about the grief, the men lost at sea, the women who wail, you know, who, who grieve over their losses. Um, um, but it's also an image of grace, that something divine is, it's an image of the mysterious ways in which God works in the world. On land, if I can put it, this is going to be too black and white, but I think it's a useful image. On land, man, remember, God, this is sort of amazing. Remember from the beginning, we've been talking about the city. The city came into existence in an effort to live without God. Enoch built the first city after, the, after they were expelled from the garden. So the city's an image of man's attempt to live without God, to be self-sufficient and not need him. So man imposes this structure on land. It's full of the intellectual structures, particularly of men. Um, they're not fluid. They're not flexible. But in some ways, they're necessary. Man can't live without them. We cannot. We need them. But men can get stuck in those things. Um, Ishmael goes to sea. Odysseus goes to sea. Pericles goes to sea. So it's a place where things change. There are adventures. Um, people face death. They die. It's also an image of grace. Remember, baptism is through water. We die in water to be reborn again. Um, so this, the sea is a really complicated, rich symbol of everything that's mysterious in life, that um, we can't, we're not meant to live there. It's too dangerous, too uncertain. But in some ways, it's so helpful to our growth. Um, and I thought you put it, I mean, you, I, I, the way you put it, Karen, that I can't remember, that Marina doesn't have a lot of choices, neither does Pericles. You know, they're forced to live in those conditions. That, that's why that relationship between Pericles and the regimes is so He keeps encountering these political regimes um, and is tested by them. Um, but he has to return to sea, he has to leave. Um, in, the, in Pericles, it's an image where everything is lost and everything's found. Um, okay, any last thoughts about, you can say that in some ways it's an image also of our faith, that, that our faith introduces us to an area that's mysterious. Remember I keep using this word, the um, apophatic, that when we take the Eucharist or are involved in the sacraments, where are we? We enter a mystery. It's like the sea. It's shifting, confusing, dangerous. We're thrown out of that place where we have control. We have to navigate it. We have to learn to work with it. Um, so our faith introduces us to that dimension. It was there for the pagans. Homer saw it that way clearly in the Odyssey. It's where, it's where Odysseus learns to meet all the archetypes. He can't get home unless he learns to deal with them. It's true with us. We can't become who we are without making a place for those mysteries, those things that unsettle us, that throw us off balance, that make us, that keep us alert and vigilant, you know, that keep us from falling asleep in our comfort, I guess. Okay. Um, Winter's Tale, as you know from what I've said, I think I think is Shakespeare's most mature um, work. 
Um, he's going to do a couple of strange things here, and let me put one of them out on the table right at the outset. Um, critics place pair or Winter's Tale in that category of romances. There's a collection of plays at the end of his life. Cymbeline, Twelfth Night, Pericles, um, Winter's Tale, Tempest. I'm sorry they do in one sense for this reason. If you look at Shakespeare's tragedies, Shakespeare's following a pagan pattern. We, we, I think we talked a little bit about this last week. The recognition involved two people. That's the first time we've seen that, yeah? Hamlet, Othello, um, King Lear. It involved two people, and a recognition happened simultaneously. And as, as Suzanne said last week, it just it multiplies the joys greatly. The pagan idea from Aristotle, which I believe is still true, always will be, just so sound, um, was that comedy is represented in a movement from a bad fortune to good. Tragedy is a movement from good fortune to bad. All tragedy ends in death. Okay? You know from our reading of Boethius and Dante that according to a Christian view, there cannot be a tragedy as a final end. We've talked about this some. Um, when, when journalists say, oh, this girl you know, was hit by a car accident, it was a tragedy. That's not a tragedy. That's um, journalistic um, rhetoric. Yeah? A tragedy is an action that has a purpose. It's a whole. It, it helps us to see something about life that has a tragic ending. You know from Christianity that our endings cannot be tragic in the way the pagans understood it. Because in a, in a tragedy, in a pagan world, and in all of Christian, or I mean in all of Shakespeare's tragedy, and he was Christian. You know that I think he was Catholic. We don't. There's a big quarrel about that. He ends his tragedies the same way the pagan worlds do, except most of his tragic heroes are Christian. Othello was recently baptized. Um, Hamlet is Christian. Macbeth, I think, was recently baptized. So he doesn't do a lot with that, but we know that we're in a Christian world with Christians undergoing a, a tragic action. They all end tragically with lots of people dying. With Christianity, we know that death is not the end of things. For a pagan, that wasn't so. The reason the ending was tragic, because a very noble man, and I'm going to say like all of us, I, I, have, I have no questions in my mind that there is an extraordinary nobility in Connie, in Kay, in Anne, in Bob and Karen. And I even have to say that about Melody. <laughs> Sorry, Melody, I had to... And, and in Melody, I had to just... God, I can't... Somebody pray for me, please. God. That there's a nobility in all of us. We were made in God's image. Yeah? I mean, that, that's just true for every one of us, even if people don't want to admit it. It's very different from a modern evolutionary perspective, but... That's our belief. We were made in God's image. A pagan had that same view, and that's why they thought if, um, if somebody died because of his own actions, that was tragic. You know, from, this is so good, that you know from Aristotle 
that a recognition was essential for that action because it was a reaffirmation of everything good in man, his reason, his powers of apprehension, his ability to turn. If you take away the recognition and the turn, the, the, the um, peripatia and the anagnorisis, the peripatia is the turn, the anagnorisis is the scene. If you take those away in a world full of suffering, you've got nihilism. You've got a world that's meaningless. I hope that's clear. Take the recognition away. Take the turn away. When you're left with everybody dying, you're in a world that's meaningless. It's nihilistic. That's why Shakespeare's plays are never nihilistic, no matter how much suffering goes on. Is everybody following me? So for the pagan mind, the end was tragic because that's all there was. All men were going to die. Every great ancient tragedy was about somebody noble. So when that person lost, it, was tra it deepened our sense of suffering, of a fall, of the gravity of it. Okay? Is everybody with me? In Christianity, that stops. Christ came to redeem us, and we know that there's an afterlife. And Christ came to reveal it. That's why Dante's Divine Comedy is called a comedy, because he's showing the end of things in hell. Is anything in hell tragic the way it is in Lear or Oedipus Rex or the Oristia? No. Because Dante knows that if somebody goes to hell, they do it because they're stupid. It's a different world. Christ has come to reveal. The pagans didn't have that. Okay, it's stupid. I mean, we can't, if we feel pity in, in the infernos the way some of us would, we know that gradually as we move through, we have to learn to be more and more careful of the pity that we feel for people because it can trap us and make us turn against God. Yeah? Now, May I ask a question? Wait, one, I'm almost done. Just okay, give me ahead, one more ahead. minute. Sorry, Melody, sorry for this. That's right. This is so important for our, the way we look at the world. So, In Winter's Tale, Shakespeare is doing something he never did before. Never. If you look at the Leontes play from the beginning through the third act, when he loses his, I'm giving, I'm going to have to give this away, you know I don't like doing this. He loses his son, he loses his wife, Paulina will come to him with his baby and said, this is your child. And he's going to say, no, it's not, take it away. And he asks, orders Paulina's husband, Antiochus, to take that child away and abandon it to its death. It's exactly what happened with uh, Marina with Dionysa, when Dionysa told her henchmen, take this girl away and kill her. We're in the same world. And it's interesting that it's a daughter, a woman again. Her name is Perdita, which means that which is lost. Now, if you look at the play from the beginning to the third act, what happens with the Leontes, when he loses everything, and including his wife, he accuses his wife of adultery. Who does that remind you of? A tragic hero who accuses his wife of being unfaithful. We've read well, it. Othello. Sorry? Oh, Othello. Othello. Yeah. Right? It's, exact, it's exactly the Othello story. Exactly, exactly. 
He accuses his wife of adultery. Except at the end of Othello, what happens? Everybody dies and Othello takes his life because he recognizes he, he did what he should not He made a mistake that his wife was in fact faithful. The difference is in Othello, Othello's worked on by Iago. In Leontes, the evil that's done comes from inside Leontes. We'll see it tonight. So in, in my mind, this is far superior because we see that Shakespeare's showing that sin originates in us. But here's the point that I'm making. If you look at the play, Winter's Tale, the whole half follows the tragic paradigm, except in Winter's Tale, Shakespeare goes beyond it to a comic ending. And what he's showing us is that every tragedy implied a comic ending. It only came to fulfillment in Christianity because of what Christ did. So no matter how tragic things look from our perspective, they can never be tragic. Tragedy is only an interlude, a step. If we had eyes to see, we'd see that there's something more going on. Remember what Boethius said. What was Boethius's great line? There is no bad fortune. God is always turning something to good. So in Winter's Tale, Shakespeare does something extraordinary. He takes the whole tragic paradigm and goes beyond it to show there's a fulfillment. Let me put it differently. You know that in the Greek world, the, the plays were put on in two seasons, in winter and spring. Tragedies and comedies, because they knew that every winter when everything died, did that bring everything to its end? No, absolutely not. Every winter was followed by a spring, a rejuvenation, a revival, a rebirth. Where does Father's, or, uh, Chaucer's tale take place? In spring, when everybody's going on a journey, on a, on a pilgrimage to um, the shrine of St. Thomas, it's a time of rebirth. Remember the opening lines? When all of everything's coming to life again, those are the opening lines of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. So in Winter's Tale, Shakespeare is doing something he never did before. He's showing us that the tragic paradigm always implied a life, a renewal. But in Winter's Tale, he renders it. It's not left as something implied. He actually bring it, brings it to pass. So in Winter's Tale, we're going to be reading a play about death, sin, horrible losses, tragic losses that are all answered by something greater. Is that clear? Melody, I want to get, but before, is, it, is everybody clear on, on what's going on in Pericles and how important, why, how, how so important it is? Um, and critics don't read it. I mean, they're just going to put it with the romances and stick it there. But in, in any way in which they do that, I hope you're seeing, they're missing something. Because Winter's Tale in, includes in it a tragic paradigm. But it's assimilated into a comic action. Because Shakespeare's showing there's something greater always at work. And this is the first play in which he actually concretely realizes it. Well, we see at the end between the king and his I can't say. What we see at the end is pretty remarkable. It's, it's a lot like what happens in Pericles. 
Any questions about what I'm saying about tragedy and comedy and romance here? Is that all? you have any questions about that? So those are the three categories that people put Shakespeare's works into, Those just those three? Melody, the Shakespeare's works are divided into um, comedies, tragedies, romance, and histories. There's a group of oh. his plays that are that are that are so rooted in actually what happened historically. But I hope you're all understanding. I I've tried to make it clear that, like in Lear or Cymbal Cymbeline, is a play set at the time when Christ came into the world. Very few people touch on that. It's a it's amazing for that fact. Um, when the king says justice is for all, that's exactly the moment Christ is born. But nothing explicitly is said about Christ. So many of his plays are rooted in history. But in the history plays, he actually takes on the history of the Tudor line, the usurpation that took place that led to the Tudor line and Henry and finally Elizabeth. So there's a group of plays that are called histories. But tragedies, comedies, romances... Um, and histories, yeah, those, those are. And and do you? I mean, why does he use um, nobility so much? Is it because of that idea that we all have a little bit of nobility just because of our Christian background? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I it if that's I mean those are that's such a subtle question. Um, in one sense, Shakespeare was educated on the pagans. I mean, if you read him, you know that he took that. He's not like moderns who want to do away. He, 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 he was as great as he would because he took that whole world forward. So he had a noble view of man, but he was also Christian, and the Christian view is noble. But if you, so, so many of the plays that he's dealing with are set in monarchies, which you know are, are based on a sense that there is a nobility by class, that was, that was in Pericles, that there was something noble in Marina's birth. Actually, in the movie um, Secretariat, they're trying to breed horses because they know that there's something noble that's passed along in a, in a line. Same thing with dogs. Same thing's true of humans. It's, that's why it's distressing for me. It's why I asked the question last week. If you take away any sense of nobility or virtue, what happens to man? What will happen to him? But anyway, to go to your question, he, so many of his plays are set in monarchies. Remember, All's Well That Ends Well with um, Helena is set in the French monarchy. The English plays are, that's, that's why uh, the principle of primogenitor, you know, the, the firstborn who's going to inherit, is so important. But remember, he also did those plays in Italy, which are the beginnings of um, democracies, republics. Those are republican forms of government. He, that's why Shakespeare knew regimes. So I, I just want to put that in your mind so that when you think about nobility, for him it wasn't just associated with aristocracies or monarchies. Um, if you look at um, what Helena does when she goes to Italy, or if you look at the plays that are set in Italy, you don't have that, um, you don't have that sort of inordinate pride that you have in the English aristocracy because you're well-born and you're better than other people. You don't have that cultivated sense of class superiority, um, but you do have a kind of native uh, nobility. You're in a republic. Um, 
so it's a different problem. So Shakespeare was so able to move. Um, he knew from Chaucer, because you know from your reading of Chaucer, that Chaucer deals with everybody, not just the nobles. The knight is the noblest person, but there's a goodness in a lot of people there. But he wrote a poem called Gentilessa. You should read it, go online, Gentilessa, in which he's saying that Gentilessa, real gentleness, is not a product of class education. It's, it's inborn. The question is, can you help cultivate it in your children? Do you see it so you can help bring it out? That's why this is so distressing. If you grew up in a world in which it just, you know, all of that's denied, how, how do parents help their kids? How do we help our kids or grandkids become the best that they can be? The best image of themselves. Sorry, Melody, you had a question earlier. Can, sorry to... No, that was my question. I also just was curious, uh, Romeo and Juliet, is it considered a tragedy or a romance? No, it's a tragedy. Yeah. Okay. Because they, you know, theoretically die and end up together in heaven kind of thing, if you're a Christian. It's a tragedy. No. I mean, I, that's not the perspective of the play. It's, you know, it's tragic. It's, it's one of his earlier plays. The play, and it's interesting, for, you know, the, the plays that we're reading, um, Pericles and Wintersdale, are late in his life. And he's, he's written, you know, Romeo and Juliet and the earlier comedies, Love, Labor's Law, all those, the, you know, the comedies are light and funny. These are graver. There's a great goodness in them. The suffering's deeper. There's a greater suffering in, in what takes place in these plays than there was in, even in Romeo and Juliet. Hmm? Anthony. Anthony and Cleopatra belongs to these later plays. Okay, let me... Any other questions about the genre and tragedy and why it's important here, what we're reading? The settings... Um, um, sorry, did somebody have a question? I have a question. I hear a voice, sorry. Did somebody... I'm going to mute all you guys again, just uh, and anytime you want to come in, just unmute yourself and please feel free to come in. Um, the settings are Sicilia and Bohemia. The play opens in Sicilia. It's in the southern part of Italy. So in one sense, hold on to this very seriously. In one sense, it's an image of Renaissance culture. It's a, it's a regime in which... Um, people have reached a degree of sophistication the way the Italian regimes have because if you look at if you look at Italy I hope everybody sees this if you look at Italy during the Renaissance it was probably the most cultivated country in the world if you compare it to England England is a backwoods country it's Tennessee in America uneducated primitive you know there's a court system working but a general education does not exist in England it's around the court. In Italy, these new communes came into existence. It's all that we read from the time of Dante, where this new sense of republican freedom entered, and, and education was dispersed. More people were educated. They achieved these. This, there was this great outpouring of art, Michelangelo, all of them. You know, um, Sicily's like that. It's a sophisticated regime. We'll see that in the beginning when we look at it. Bohemia is that. It's bohemian, it's rustic, it's pastoral. When Perdita grows up, she's going to grow up 
in that pastoral world. There's going to be two courts, one in Sicily and one in Bohemia. So the court world is going to be central to both of those. But they're going to be two very different settings, two very different cultures. And between them, the sea. <laughs> Again, the sea. Um, so keep in mind the importance of the sea in these two regimes, okay? Um, the two rulers are Leontes, who's the ruler of Sicily, and Polonixis, his dear friend, who's the ruler in uh, Bohemia. The two f men have been friends since boyhood. Pol the play is going to open with Polixenes having come for a visit. He's staying nine months. He's been there nine months. Hermione is pregnant nine months. That's an absolutely crucial fact to see at the beginning because, as you know, Leontes is going to suspect Polixenes of childing that father of his wife of committing adultery. Um, there are two <coughs> serious frames of mind in the book very clearly distinguished. One is masculine, one is feminine. And I don't want to give that away, but just be aware. We're going to encounter the masculine man in the opening, the, the masculine mind in the opening. We'll see it in just a second. Um, I think those are the the um, the major things that I just throw out there for you to be aware of as we start. You know that one of the plays that I'm going to ask, I mean, one of the questions that I'm going to ask, it's been true of all the plays we've read, all the works, is there a God, is there a divine order working in the play, is Christ at work? I'm going to repeat that because it's crucial. Is there a divine order working in the play? Are the gods at work? How do we know? How do we know? With reason. Not just with faith, with reason. Where's their evidence? Is there evidence in Pericles that the gods are at work? There is. Is there evidence here? Okay. Here's the questions that I'd like to ask you to, for you to keep with you as you read the play. They're at the end of my notes, or towards the end of my notes. In Pericles, what's lost is returned. It's enhanced by graces. If one is good, if one is virtuous. Is Winters, in Winter's Tale, what is Shakespeare showing us about innocence? The blindness that comes from thinking that we're okay. We're going to see that in the beginning, the two men act innocent, and so do the women. I believe that one of the great faults of Americans is that we live in innocence. We, we live as if we've returned to a garden world and we're innocent. People can do whatever they want. They're not in sin. Even when they commit sins, they don't believe they've committed sins. We're all innocent. We can do whatever we want. What's the consequence of that kind of innocence for all of us? For me, for Suzanne, for any of you, for any of us? What is Shakespeare showing us about that innocence to approach the world as if we're innocent? Major question. One of my students asked it, and I have never forgotten. When we were reading Winter's Tale, he said, why is it that so often in life we have to lose everything before we come to our senses. Leontes is going to lose everything he loves. Why is it that we have to lose things in order to wake up? I'm going to come back to that question because me, for me it's huge. Does everybody understand that? Why do we have to lose things before we wake up? What's that say about us and, and about God? Compare Pericles as ruler with Leontes, or sorry, compare Leontes with Pericles. Paulina, 
in a sense, is the artist, the creative source of something in this play. She's like an artist in the center of the play, and it's feminine. Which, what, what she does in this, once again, it's a remarkable woman. The men are scoundrels, again. Camila's a good man, but he's a servant. Paulina is an extraordinary woman. Is there any, is the, is it an accident that her name resembles Paul's? St. Paul? She's Paulina. What she does is extraordinary. When we compare to the other servants, Camilo in this play, remember um, Cornwall's servant in Lear, remember Cornwall's servant? He turned on him. When Cornwall was blinding Gloucester, he turned on him, drew out a sword, and was going to kill his master. He said, I've known you as a boy. Don't do this. He saw he saw the man he, that raised him, treated him as, as as you know as a good ruler, doing something horrible. He pulls out a sword and wounds him fatally. He's a good servant. He's going against his master. Kent Wait. is a remarkable is a remarkable servant. Helicanus and Pericles, another good servant. Every one of the plays in which we've dealt with lords have had really good servants. Without them, they could not have gone on to, to come to the good that they do come to. Okay, the importance of servants, people who serve. Um, how important are they for the nobles, the people who are above them, who do these awful things? Paulina is an extraordinary figure. What, how is she different from these other figures? Big question. Okay. Um, and once again, is God, is the divine order? If you look at the, at the notes, if you've looked at them at the very end on the last page, um, I've given you a, um, a passage from an English critic whom I, whose work on Wintersdale I really admire. He's describing what I tried to describe earlier, that, that there's a difference between Othello and Winter's Tale, and he'll make it clear. It's a wonderful essay. It's really good. That Shakespeare is transforming a tragic paradigm. At the very end, I gave you um, different, just brief sketch images of what happens to the mind, because it's, it's been a central theme for all the work that we've done. Um, you know that in our plays, very often people misread each other. And you know from the beginning, it's one of the fundamental principles that I've made. It's, it's one of the principles at the center of our work. I've insisted from the beginning that we don't read very well. We think we do. And that's a problem that's um, prevalent among educated classes. Because people are educated, they think they see better than others, they think they're better than others. And what we learn is very often they're more blind. Oedipus Rex was among the most educated people in Oedipus Rex the play. He's got a brilliant mind. He's the most flawed. He's the most blind. How well do we see? We think because we're educated we see well and what we learn from these plays is very often when we think we see well we don't. St. Thomas said as a fundamental principle, truth, I want everybody to hold on to this, Truth is the conformity of the mind with things. I'll repeat it. Truth is the conformity of the mind with things. To, to conform our mind to the things the way they are. 
the modern world thinks it can change the world and make the world over into its own image. So they'll recreate it according to whatever they have in their heads. Um, and I've listed St. Thomas of Protestant, modern sciences, modern flood, Judaism. I've given some suggestion of, of what I think is there and why there are these fundamental differences in the way people f see things. Now, as Christians, as Cat particularly as Catholics, because we believe in a sacramental order in the sacraments, we believe that what's in front of us in the way that it appears has different levels of meaning, contains more than it seems. So when we take a wafer and wine in communion, we're not just taking a wafer and, and wine. You know, according to most Protestant fundamentalist denominations, or to a secular mind, they're going to look at, at that and say, what are you doing? How stupid. A, a piece of wafer? Some wine? Are you kidding? Um, for a Catholic, we believe that, there are, that reality is layered, that what's in front of us. So in confession, we're not just talking to a man. In confession, something's happening. If we carry that principle out into the world, we should, we should be, I mean, the position that I've been taking in all of this, we should be entering a world, taking very seriously what we see. The car in front of us is real. We shouldn't be running out in front of a car. But we also know that there's something more going on. Do we live enough with the sense that there's more going on, that God is doing something? <clears throat> How open are we to the mystery of God's work in the world? It's actually it's one of the reasons I, I would really, if you if you have time to go go online and listen to the passages we've done on uh, Matthew and what we started last night on I thought what we did last night on John was amazing. I, I think you'd enjoy it. It fits so well with what we're doing here. Anyway, those are some of the some of the major concerns of Pericles. Let me stop and uh, sorry, I mean Winterstep. Um, any questions before we begin? Seeing. Remember in Lear, um, reason in madness. Lear does not see the world at the end the way he did in the beginning. Neither does Cordelia. People say he's mad at the end when he says, look there, look there. Does he see, most modern secular critics are going to say, he's mad, leave him alone, just like the people in the play. At the end of Pericles, remember, when Pericles goes, hark the music, hark the music, everybody around says, quiet, let him be. They think he's mad. Right? We read that last week. Yes? They say, leave him alone. Does he see something that we don't? What does he see? Or here, let me enlarge it. What does he see that they don't? Let me enlarge it. In the Gospel of Matthew, and particularly in the Gospel of John, how does John the Baptist see what he says, sees? How, did, how does some of those Jews see what Christ is doing and others don't? He's right in front of them doing the same action. Why is some of them seeing the deeper meaning of that and others not a clue? Is everybody following? Same world, right? We all have eyes. What's going on? And you know from the beginning, well, sorry, what are these poets doing to help us see and feel? 
because they don't just touch our minds, they touch our hearts. It's one of the reasons why I think this is so extraordinary. What are they helping? And remember what Gloucester said in the Heath when he and Lear were going, when everybody thought they were going mad. Gloucester says, I see it feelingly. And remember the beginning? He's so glib and callous, so glib, so glib. Tosses off his illegitimate son as if it were nothing. He's blind now. He's wounded. He's suffered. He sees things he didn't before. He says, I see it feelingly. He sees it with his heart. So this whole theme of seeing how we see things, why sometimes we have to suffer before our eyes will be open, these are all crucial to Pericles and Winter's Tale. Let me stop. I'm going to go to the play. Any, any comments or questions before we turn to the play? <coughs> Bob, we missed you last week. Come on, I, I know there's a question somewhere in that soul of yours. You, any thoughts here? Thoughts to all this? I don't believe that. You know, except he pops out. <laughs> okay, um, Connie, your your image disappeared. Are you, did you disappear too? I, no, I was cooking. I, so I, I've been going back and forth, but I'm listening though. You better. <laughs> I have my ear, earphones in. Good, good. You know that if, if we do, by the way, this, the, by the way, here, I didn't say this. I'm Kay, there you are. Um, I, before you got on, I told everybody you, you're keeping me honest, that you kept me clear about what we're doing, you know. And the next, we, I, I'm planning that we will take maybe three weeks, three more weeks on Winter's Tale. I think we'll be able to do it then. And then we'll stop. What I'd like to do then is take a break. And I'd like to hear from you guys um, about, you know, my thought is to do the Gospels, to do Matthew and John. I want to talk with Father about it. But what I'd like to do is take a break for a couple of weeks, let you guys re recover from all of this. And then we'll pick up the Gospels. Um, but I really would like to hear your thoughts about what all of this has meant to you, what you've gotten out of it. But um, but we'll spend the next, I think, three, if we allow three more weeks, we should be able to get through Winter's Tale. And, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll pick up again. But I'd like to hear from you before that decision's final and before I talk with Father about what we're going to do. Okay. Okay, the beginning of Winter's Tale. The play begins with um, two of the servants, Archidamus, um, who's a servant of Polixenes and Camilo, talking about um, the differences between the two regimes and something that's happening between them. And just like, remember, I've said that the very opening lines of every play always contain the play in a germ to some something small. In a sense, we're told, we're, we're shown a lot here in the opening that will become clear as we go through. This is Shakespeare's way of showing. You know, we can look at, we can look at a thing right in front of us and think we see it. 
and then suddenly it explodes with meaning and we realize the meaning was always there we just needed time to see it fill out just like our lives we still look at each other we're the same person but in, in through our experiences and our age we, we learn to see that there's so much going on in each of us that we um, than, than we saw when we were younger so Archidemus says if you shall chance Camilla to visit Bohemia on the like occasion whereon my services are now on foot, you shall see, as I have said, great differences between our Bohemia and um, Cecilia. So some there are two radical differences here. They're going to emerge here. Archidemus says, Verily I speak in the freedom of my knowledge. We cannot with such magnificence, in so rare, I know not what to say. We will give you sleepy drinks, that your senses unintelligent of our insufficiency may though they cannot praise us as little acuteness accuses. so it's like walking into a house that's a mansion and recognizing there's all this wealth and inviting somebody to your house when it's going to be poor and your response is i'll put drugs in your drink so you <laughs> you won't notice you know how how much we're lacking in what you have so Cecilia is a place of wealth bohemia is not Bohemia is a simpler place. You pay a great deal too dear for what's given freely because everything that um, Camilo and Leontes offer is offered freely. They love them. Camilo, Sila cannot show himself over kind to Bohemia. They were trained together in their childhoods. And they're rooted twixt them, then such an affection which cannot choose but branch now. It's, it's going to get richer. Here we are. Here's this friendship between two men. They've been friends all their life. In the next 60 seconds, this great divide is going to open up as if they were never friends. What, what happens here? Um, they've been royally attorneyed with interchange of gifts, letters, loving embassies that they have seemed to be together, though absent. What's that? Distance makes the hearts fonder or separation makes the heart fonder shook hands as over a vast and embraced as it were from the ends of opposite winds the heavens continue their loves Archidamus, i think there's not in the world either malice or matter to alter it nothing will become come between these two men you have an unspeakable comfort of your young prince mamias he is a gentleman of the greatest promise that ever came into my note camilo i very well agree with you in the hopes of him, it is a gallant child, one that indeed physics the subject, makes old hearts fresh. They that went on crutches ere he was born desire yet their life to see him a man. So one of the differences here is there's a young heir, <clears throat> this young Mamelius. The old people are enlivened by his mere presence. If they were in crutches ready to die, they want to live to see this young man become king. So in Cecilia, there's all this promise. There's an heir that's full of talent and goodness. The older men love to see him. They're given life by being around. You know that feeling if our grandchildren are around. Um, I'm always glad to see them for about 60 seconds, and then I want to strangle them. But, um, but you know, they, they give us life and then, and then wear us out. I don't know if that's true of you, Connie. I, I can't believe, is it? <laughs> Um, but they're describing that condition that there's this promise in this world. Okay, that's Act One. 
It begins with Polixenes in, act, or in scene two saying, nine changes of the watery star have been the shepherd. They've been there for um, nine months, and he says it's time to leave. Um, Leonte tries to persuade him to stay because they've enjoyed, they're, they're dear friends, they love each other. Um, and he turns to Hermione and says, you persuade him, he's not going to listen to me. Isn't that true? I mean, men have got work to do. It was the same thing in Merchant Venice. I've got to go because I've got work. And you turn to the men, and the men are going to turn to the women and say, you tell them because they're more likely to listen to you. Um, Hermione says about line 30, I had thought, sir, to have held my peace until you had drawn oaths from him not to stay. You, sir, charge him too coldly. Tell him you aren't sh sure all in Bohemia as well. This satisfaction the bygone day proclaims. Say this to him. He's beat from the best word. S say that you've got business. Leontes well said, Hermione. To tell him to tell he longs to see his son were strong, but let him say so then. And let him go. But that isn't what he said. But let him swear so, so he'll and he'll and he shall not stay. We'll thwack him hence with distaffs. Yet of your royal presence I'll adventure the borrow of a week. When at Bohemia you take when you take my lord, I'll give him my commission to let him hear a month behind the the guest, the jest prefixed for parting. Yet good deed, Leontes, I love thee not a jar or the clock behind, what lady she her lord? You'll stay? No, madam. Nay, but you will. I may not. Verily? You put me off with limber vows. I mean, she's wonderful. Verily it is. You're going to, that's going to do it? I mean, she's playing on the spirit that he's a man and saying, Tru truly, I have to go. And she's saying, that's all you're going to do verbally, this? Will you go yet? Force me to keep you as a prisoner, not like a guest, so you shall pay your fees when you depart and save your thanks? How say you? My prisoner or my guest? Um, by your dread, verily, one of them you shall be. This is all said lightly, but she introduces the term prisoner, and it's going to come back to haunt us. She's doing it playfully, you know, to, she's playing verbally with him. She's going to end up being a prisoner in the tower in the middle of the play. And we can say, quite honestly, Leontes will be imprisoned in a prison of his own making. He will imprison himself. It's one of the themes of the play. That very often we do things to put ourselves in prisons while pretending that we don't. Yeah? Is everybody with me? Um, about line 60. Not your um, jailer then, but your kind hostess. Stay. Come, I'll question you of my lord's tricks and yours um, when you were boys. You were pretty lordings then. We were, fair queen, two lads that thought there was no more behind but such a day tomorrow as today, and to be boy eternal. It's like they lived in innocence, the way young boys do, or young girls. Was not my lord the very wag of the two? Was he more daring, a little bit going out with a sense of with girls? We were as twin lambs that did frisk in the sun and bleat the one at the other. What we changed was innocence for innocence. We knew not the doctrine of ill-doing, nor dreamed that any did. Had we pursued that life, and our weak spirits ne'er been higher reared, 
With stronger blood, we should have answered heaven boldly, not guilty. The imposition cleared hereditary ours. They inherited an innocence. They lived in innocence. Hermine, I mean, the verbal cha- exchange here between man and woman is really fine. By this we gather you have tripped since. Oh, my most sacred lady, temptations have since been born to us. For in these unfledged days was my wife a girl. Your gracious self had not then yet crossed the eyes of my young plague. Graced about. Of this make no um, conclusion, lest you say your queen and I are devils. They're the one responsible for the fall. I mean, they're just this wonderful, playful banter. Um, um, Leontes, is he one yet? He'll stay, my lord. At my request, he would not. So she's convinced him. um, And Hermione and um, Polixenes will go off by themselves. And this is where the turn, what the, what the play would call the complication, this is where the turn takes place. Suddenly, from this very innocent, playful exchange between good friends and a husband and wife who love each other dearly and good, a, a man and a man who grown up friends who love each other dearly, suddenly something is going to um, happen. Um, about line 110. Hermione and Polixenes are off in the corner, and Leontes looks at them. Now, I want to I want to pause on this, so I want everybody to look at this really closely. What's going on? Too hot, too hot to mingle friendship far as mingling bloods. I have tremor, cordis in me. My heart dances, but not for joy, not joy. This entertainment may a free face put on, derive a liberty from hardiness from bounty, fertile bosom, and well become the agent. May I grant, but um, but to be paddling palms and pinching fingers as now they are, and making practical smiles as in a looking glass, and then to sigh as twere the more to the deer, the death of the deer. Oh, that is entertainment my bosom likes not, nor my brows. Mamilius, are that my boy? He's saying that as if he's wondering if... Um, he So... It seems to be a moment of, well, let me wait. He turns to his son to say, are you my child? And me, he says, of course. Um, Leontes, 128, thou, um, thou wants a rough patch, and the shoots I have to be full like me, yet they say we are most as like as eggs. Women say so that we'll say anything. Um... Go down a few lines, come, Sir Page, look at me with your welkin eyes. He's trying to see if there's a resemblance, if he can assure himself that this is his son. (coughs) Sweet villain, most dearest, my collop, canst thy die, may it be, affection, thy intention stabs the center, thou dost make possible things not so held. Communicatest with dreams, how can this be? With what's unreal, thou coactive art and fellowest nothing then tis very credent thou mayest co-join with something and thou dost do doubt dust and that beyond commission and i find it that to the infection of my brains and hardening of my brows polixenes turns to him because it looks like leontes is troubled and he'll say nothing's happened but i want to pause these are not, I don't think, easy lines to understand. So I want to take a minute with them. 
Um, he says at the beginning, to go back around 110, Too hot, too hot to mingle friendship, far as mingling bloods, I have tremor cordis in me, my heart dance, dances, but not for joy, not joy. Um, something's happening, he looks to his son, and then he says these words, Sweet villain, thou dearest my colon, colon, collop, can thy damn may be affection, thy intention stabs the center, thou dost make possible things not so held, communicatest with dreams, how can this be? With what's unreal, thou coactive art, and fellowest nothing. Then tis very credent thou mayest co-join with something, and thou dost, and that beyond commission, and I find it, and that to the infection of my brains and hardening of my brows. What's happening? What's he saying? I don't think those are easy lines, so I want to take a minute with them because they're crucial to the play. Remember in Othello, Othello worked, I mean, Iago worked on him. He said, think, think. Remember when Iago, or Cassio was by and, and Iago wants to let on that he has a suspicion about Cassio and he says, think, and it tells, goes, what's on your mind? What do you think? And then that word must take, must recur 20 times. Iago keeps insinuating that something's going on. There's nothing like this here. Um, Othello, or I mean, Iago is, or Leontes is looking at his wife and something's happening. But I want to, I want to pay particular attention to those last words. What's he saying? Affection, thy intention, stabs the center, thou dost make possible things not so held. Communicates with dreams, how can this be? With what's unreal, thou co-active art, and fellowest nothing. Then tis very credent, thou mayest co-join with something, and thou dost, and that beyond commission, and I find it, and that to the infection of my brains and hardening of my brows. What's just happened? What, what do his words mean? Anne, can you take a stab? These are not easy lines, I know. Well, he, I'm not sure I'm answering the question. He is suspicious of his wife and his uh, lifelong best friend which I have to admit, I had some trouble with reading it just because he turned so quickly. Yeah, yeah. The only, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good, uh, I, I think, I mean, I think I can say this for myself. I better be careful here. I'd, I'd be surprised if most of us, particularly in the loves that we have, haven't had moments where a spark of jealousy just hit could be a small thing. Could be a really small thing. You know that in Othello, it's a small thing. Othello loves Desdemona more than his life, in a sense. And yet, that little thing happens. And once it happens, so it's like the jealousy. Or let me let me come in. Let me go out on a limb here. Whatever self-love that's in us, when it's touched by that thing that you know that gets protective. It's as if it suddenly opens to something much larger. 
And that may not happen for most of us, but I'd say it's still there. That vulnerability, that we love somebody, that we can be wounded by them, that we trust ourselves over to them. That if that jealousy comes, it can be a small thing and nothing may come of it. But one of the things Shakespeare's doing, and you know this from all the plays, is he's taking those things and showing us <laughs> there's more to them than we often want to admit. We, we saw that with Dante. I mean, Dante gave us a pretty thorough look into our own souls, and we saw the smallest, the smallest thing, the implications of the smallest thing. We, we saw them writ large, what, what they were. So even though it seems surprised, I, I think dramatically it, it sort of just makes the point that sometimes those things happen. And we know that because they can be the beginning of jealousies, angers, rages. It can lead to separations, violence. You know, what was the beginning of them? They all began somewhere. When you, when you declare your love for somebody and then suddenly one day you're in a battle with that person, um, it, didn't go, it didn't come out of nowhere. There was something there. Do we see it? So even if it seems sudden, it, it, it seems to me very real. I want to get at these lines. Affection, thy intention, stabs the center. Thou dost make possible things not so held. Commun tell me the meaning of this line. Communicate us with dreams. How can that be? With what's unreal, thou coactive art, and fellowest nothing. Then tis very credent, thou mayest co-join with something, and thou, thou dost. What's the meaning of those, just those few lines? Can anybody open them up here? Doc, you want to take a stab? Sorry, I was looking at another line. Oh, would you... What's the line? God. Affection, I intention stabs the center. What's the number? Right? It's different numbers, 130, 140. Um, Melody, do you want to take a stab? These are tough lines. I, I was using the bottom, um, the explanations of the words at the bottom, but it's, it's almost like to me, like the 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 devil <laughs> entered him, and things that he saw before, his vision has totally changed now, and he's picking up on stuff. You know, just the way she touched his arm as they walked out uh, of the room, and before he was amazed he'd never seen that before. It didn't affect him, and now it has. I, I that's. That's what I get from this, even though I can't tell you word for word yeah, why I yeah, think that. No, yeah, no, it's affection, thou, thy intention stabs the center. The affections that we have for somebody else, the emotions, the feelings that we have, stabs the center. Something stabs, pricks us, stabs the center. Thou dost make possible things not so held. Suddenly, once that's pricked, you start imagining things that aren't there. You have no basis in reality. It can be, I mean, you can, I'm glad you, you know, you could be touching somebody's arm. That touch can mean, actually, it can mean a lot. But the point he's making is that um, steps making things not so held. Communicate us with dreams, with things that aren't real. How can this be? With what, with what's unreal, thou coactive art. You become co-creators with this unreal thing, coactive with it. It communicates itself to you. And you make, um, 
and fellow is nothing. Nothing can come out of it because there's nothing there. Then tis very credent thou mayest cojoin with something and thou dost and that beyond commission. So suddenly you make this thing that's imagined, it's a product of your own imagining, and you make it real. And you take it beyond commission. You give it more credence than you even want to. Everything in you says no, but something of that weakness in you wants to make it real anyway, and you do. I think I don't think that's very unusual. I think I think all of us have can relate to this experience. I mean it's and it goes to the point that I was making before at the end of my notes. What does the mind grasp? Are you actually ga- grasping what's there? Are you, are you replacing it with something you're projecting of your own? And fellow, it's well, nothing. Wait, wait, sorry. Nothing comes of it. Tis very credent. Thou mayest co-join with something, and thou dost, and that be on commission, be on your own will. And I find it that, and that to the infection of my brain, that it so takes over, that it infects me and hardens my brows. It so takes over that that's the way I see things and I cannot stop it. Something like, anyway, sorry, Melody, go ahead. No, that's okay. So when I said something about the devil, it's because I kept seeing, you know, this person being named um, um, within this dialogue, but the way you making it sound, it's almost like he's... Pers- he, it's the personification of jealousy that has. Yeah, taken I don't think over. there's a person. He's not describing. A, he's describing an action in his soul. Okay. Something. There's, there's no devil. There's no person. It's something within himself that is so taken over him. Affection. So if that, he sees that, why does he continue to get more jealous? Oh well, ask the whole class. When any of us had a moment like that. Why do we hold on to it when something in us says, stop, it's not real? I mean, the answer to that is, it's a fallen creature, there's something in us, there's a vulnerability, a weakness, I mean, however, wherever you want to go, that that's a part of our weak, why, 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 did, why did Christ have to come into the world? What's wrong with something at our center that we can't get a hold of by ourselves? There's this goodness in all of us, but there's something... You know, going back in our classes, I've talked about that moment of the fall that when we turned our love away from God to ourselves. Something of that center is wounded. And so much of our life is working to heal it, to answer it to, with a grace. Um, Hermione and, and Leontes go into the garden shortly um, I mean, say Polixenes go into the garden, and Leontes will call Camilla to him. He says in about line 200, Should all despair that have revolted wives, the tenth of mankind, would hang themselves. Wives, women play loose. So do men, women play loose. Right now he's looking at his wife. Physic, for there's none. It is a body planet that will strike where tis predominant and tis powerful, think it, from east to west, north and south. Be it conclu- Look at divorces, affairs. I mean, we don't have to look beyond ourselves or our communities. They're rampant. Um, um, I, I mean, I don't know much about Europe, but, and I don't know how much credence to give this. Amy was there for a while, and 
she and a, a young man were serious with each other and she said when she came away from Italy she came away with the sense that it was a place for mama's boys that all the young men were sort of mama's boys and affairs were entered into right and left people who were married who were having affairs all the time not giving them a thought I think that's probably a pretty accurate description of a lot of what goes on in the modern world if marriage is no longer sacred why struggle to be faithful he's describing something that's been true after the fall physic for there's none it's a body planet that will strike no barricada for a belly know it it will let in and out the enemy with bag and baggage she's pregnant she's carrying a child many thousands on have the d's and and feel us not how now how now my boy is going to look at mimilus again these things go on all around us in fact it seems to me that adds to the vulnerability if you're married and you look on your spouse you do it with some sense that this is our culture i mean i'm not i don't want to go on in this but i'm trying to make it as credible as i can he brings camilo in and he accuses his wife and camilo does everything he can to persuade Leonte that he's wrong. He says about 240, be it forbid my lord, Leontes, to um, to bite on it, thou art thou art not honest, or if thou inclinest that way, thou art a coward, which boxes honesty behind restraining from course required, or else thou must be counted a servant grafted in my serious trust, and thereupon negligent, or else a fool, thou seest a game played home that rich stake drawn and take us all for jest is everybody following this is a king because camilla disagrees with him he's calling him a fool and a coward so immediately and we i mean imagine henry i mean i mean we don't have to go to the kings we can look at marriages today when somebody has to make an argument compelling for something anybody who disagrees with him he'll see that way here's a servant who's saying you're wrong and Leontes is a king with all of his power is saying no you're a coward or you're not um faithful my gracious lord i may be negligent foolish and fearful in every one of these no man is free but that is negligence folly fear among this infinite doings of the world sometime put forth in your affairs my lord if ever i were willful negligent it was my folly if industriously i played the fool it was my negligence not weighed well the end if ever fearful to do a thing where i the issue doubted where the execution did cry out against the non-performant twas a fear which often affects the wisest these my lord are such that is these are common things but i am not right now betraying you or going against you or doing any of these your wife is clear she's pure she's faithful camilla go down around 280 i would not be a standard by to hear my sovereign mistress clouded so without my present vengeance taken shrew god shrew my heart you never spoke what did become you less than this which to reiterate were sin as deep as that though true he's saying you're committing sin and he would be unfaithful to his queen if he didn't say that so he's going against his king and here's where i want to go we're watching a mind unhinge I'm going to say some of you can disagree but it's it seems to me this is Shakespeare's brilliance. Shakespeare's showing us modern man. Modern man. We've been getting hints of it all along. We saw some hints of it in a um Oedipus 
2,000 years ago. The intellect, what happens when the intellect goes bad? But we're seeing it full-blown right now because Shakespeare's uncovering it. Sophocles doesn't. Shakespeare is now going into a human... We're watching a mind turn in. Um, remember, he began by by just this little sting of something, watching, you know, patting hands or something, and then suddenly this coactive, you're, you're coactive with something that isn't, but you can't stop yourself. Now his servant is trying to persuade him, and he's calling his servant a liar and unfaithful. He says, um, through my heart, you never spoke what did become you less than this. This is beneath you to do this. She's pure. She's innocent. Which to reiterate, we're sin as deep as that, though true. He's saying you're sinning. He's saying this to a king. He's putting his life at risk. Here's Lantia's response. Is whispering nothing? Is leaning cheek to cheek? Is meeting noses? Kissing with inside lip? Stopping the career of laughter with a sigh? A note infallible of breaking honesty? Horsing foot on foot, skulking in corners, wishing clocks more swift, hours, minutes, noon, midnight, and all eyes blind with a pin and web, but theirs, theirs only, they can't take their eyes off of each other, that would, seem un, that would unseen be wicked, go behind the state. We know this went on, affairs went on all the time at court, all the time, between kings, princes, women, everything at court was like that. So, <clears throat> hold this. Remember I said before, in, in Sicily, we're in this very sophisticated, cultivated regime in which the mind is very active. But it's a court world, and we're watching court intrigues exactly as they would have taken place in Shakespeare's time. When we go to Bohemia, we're going to go to a pastoral world. We're going to be in a very different world. Okay, but right now we're in this sophisticated world and it's a court world that he's unfolding. All eyes blind with a pin and web, but theirs, theirs only. They can't take their eyes off it. That would unseen be wicked. If, if they could get off, they'd do it. Is this nothing? Why then the world and all that's in it is nothing. The covering sky is nothing. Bohemia, nothing. My wife is nothing, nor nothing. Have these nothings. If this be nothing, good my lord, be cured of this disease opinion. And betimes, for tis most dangerous, say it be true. Lantus won't hear him, and he's going to ask Polixenes, or Camilo, to do Polixenes in. <clears throat> he's going to go to Polixenes, and Polixenes is going to say, he's mad. Give him time to come to himself, because Polixenes knows him as a lifelong friend. Camilo knows him as a good king. So they say, give him time to get free of this temper, and they're going to flee. The next scene will begin with um, Hermione and Mamilus together, Act 2, it's the beginning of Act 2, with she and her son. It's a tender, tender moment where a mother and son are going to play with each other affectionately. Leontes is going to break into that and he's going to say, Camilo's left, he's a betrayer, you are an adulteress. He's going to accuse her of sin. I want to I look at that when we begin next week. That's going to set the play in action and everything that takes place in the in the first half of the play. But I want to go back to these lines of Leontes. Is whispering nothing? You can hear the intensity. Is this nothing, 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 nothing? You can hear him getting angrier and angrier. Is leaning cheek to cheek nothing? Is meeting noses? 
horsing on foot, skulking corners, wishing clocks more swift, hours, minutes, noon, midnight, all eyes so they could be together, they have only eyes. Is this nothing? Why then the world and all that's in it is nothing. The covering sky is nothing. Bohomi is nothing. My wife is nothing, nor nothing have these nothings, if this be nothing. Describe Leontes in this moment. <clears throat> and I'm going to say, I mean, some of the men here, I, I, maybe I should ask the women to be quiet for a minute, let the men jump in. But I'm going to say that he's showing something about the masculine mind that's a serious danger here. It's going to be in contrast to the feminine soul. And, a, and, I'm, and I hope you all hear me. I'm not saying that women don't do this because I, th I think, personally, that women have stepped into that mode in the modern world. Women are as rationalistic today as men. Um, and women can be treacherous and men can be gentle and affectionate. You know, I don't want to make a black-white thing here. But we're watching something happen here. How do, what's happening to Leontes? How do you describe this moment? And particularly the use of that word, nothing. You, you know that Shakespeare, you know what he does with language. You know how careful he is. What's he doing? What's going on? By the way, I think what's happening here is just as likely to happen with women in another way, so I don't want to make this a black-white. But I think he is revealing things here. What Can anybody describe Leontes here and the importance of that word, nothing? Well, Melody, I go ahead. Think, I would think he's mad with anger. He's just, he's gone mad with jealousy and nothing. He has just blackened his heart so it won't hurt anymore, like you said about the affection. it's He's not going to let it stab his heart anymore. He's just going to consider her as nothing important. So that's why he continues to use the word nothing. He has wiped her emotion for her, out, you know, out of his mind. Just that's her? Just her? Well, and his friend, and his buddy, yes. <clears throat> had. Hopefully not his children. Is this um, nothing? Why then the world and all that's in it is nothing. The covering sky is nothing. Bohemian nothing. My wife is nothing, nor nothing have these nothings, if this be nothing. So he's depressed? <laughs> like, depressed? <laughs> <laughs> Insane? You can... <laughs> You're being yeah, nicer than you're being nicer than I would be for sure. Just go ahead. It's a facade of reasoning, but it's the opposite. He's already he's already reached his conclusion, and what it might sound like he's asking questions, he's not. He's he's already it's accusing. He's already made his his uh, conclusion about what those small circumstances represent. Yeah, not examining them. Yeah, yeah, because was it he only saw them like either hold hands or something, right? Right. And he gets all of that from <laughs> from, Amen, from sister. Just them holding hands. I mean, all this stuff is conjured up from that little bitty. Yeah. Yep. Act there. It's a, it's an abandonment of reason. He's not. He's not being rational. Yeah. Wait. Let's go back to yes. Yes. That's one way of looking at it, and I think it's accurate too, Chuck. Remember, in we saw in Lear that when Lear begins losing Gloucester, do I mean they really do on the heath? You can say they go mad, but at that time, 
reason comes to them so that they can see things that they couldn't have seen before. So I want to be careful of our use of reason. Um, because very often mad people use reason, but they just use it in a very different way from rational people. Um, anybody else? Kay, you have a thought on this? What, how, how do you see what Leontes is doing, particularly with the way he uses nothing, the word nothing? I think he, uh, once the uh, jealousy pricks the center of his uh, heart, that spreads like a cancer yeah. and that just takes over him and by the use of nothing he is justifying his feeling mm -hmm. and trying to by trying to uh, make her nothing to him as if that will ease his wounds or take away any opposition to him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. And you have a thought? You're shaking. Shaking. Well, I kind of think of it like if our kids would say to us, "Well, I didn't do any. I didn't do anything," and we would say, "You you didn't do anything. What do you mean? You think that is nothing? You blah blah blah. Is that nothing?" And I think that's kind God. of the type of thing he's going through in his head. Oh, sorry, you're sorry. I muted you. I I wanted to get rid of put your mute on. I mean, unmuted. Sorry, Anne. Uh huh. I I think that after Camilla was trying to uh, to bring him down, he's saying, you know, how how can you say this is nothing? You think this is nothing? Well, you know. Right. Boy, I loved your tone there. I mean, I could hear all of us as parents. No, I really am so grateful. Because, I, I, you know, Connie said the slightest thing, because very often the big things come from what seems to be nothing. I mean, you know, you can, I, I think I've given this example, the cookie, the cookie jar is full at night, and you come and your grandchildren are over, and suddenly you see it's one of, the, you know, third of the way down, and you have, who had cookies? And they, none of them say, I didn't. I, you know, I mean, they lie. It's a, it's a cookie. It's a cookie. God bless it. But, but that cookie is the beginning of other things that are going to play out in their lives. And most of us don't know until we're older. I mean, I look back at the things that I did as a child. I just shudder. I just shudder. You know, they were all nothings then. But they're the beginnings of something much larger. Let, we're almost out of time. Let me just add this. It seems to me what we're watching is the modern rationalistic mind. And, um, I mean, one way of putting it... I, because I, I think it's a fair way to, to say what Chuck did. He's, you know, he's lost his reason. He's, he's going mad. I think Suzanne said he's going. This is not, how did, what was, depression? It's not depression. I mean, if, if, you, had, if you had an insane man, and, and by the way, if, I, I would rec recommend all of you read Chesterton's Orthodoxy because it's the finest tree. It's Chesterton with his typical sense of humor. He, he just, to me, he's the most amazing man in the 20th century, or one of the most amazing. He says that 90% of the chairs in, in universities are filled with guys who partly lost their minds. They're just overly rationalistic. They explain everything away. That's our, that's our culture. If you were in the presence of a madman who, who you know had schizophrenia or paranoia, and you tried to say to him, um, you shouldn't be divided about this, and you shouldn't feel that everybody's following you. 
and the guy turned outside the window and pointed to a guy in a car and he said, that guy's following you. And you said, he's not even looking at you. What would his answer be? His answer would be, of course he's not looking at me. He doesn't want anybody to know he's looking at me. They will never lack for an answer. I'm not kidding. They still have reason. It's just reason it is shrunken. They will never, never lack a reason. The sign of madness is reason that's lost its bearings with the rest of the world. It's not that reason's gone. They're very reasonable. They just reason in a very, very narrow circle. The whole point is to try to get reason to open up to a larger world. Leontes has closed it down, and the interesting thing about it is he uses reason to annihilate the world. It's gone. Everything. Not just his wife. Is this nothing? Why then the world and all that's in it's nothing. The cover that is he and he instead of the mind conforming with things or wondering or be, this goes back to Socrates. What do you know? What do you believe? They all say I you know, they they're certain about their they've always got answers. And they're always wrong. It's the mind being certain. It doesn't open on things. Here in Leontes, it is absolutely closed down. Thou dost make possible things not so held. Communicate us with dreams. You're in an unreal world. How can this be? With what's unreal, thou art, thou coactive art, and fellowest nothing. You give rise to nothing. You know it's not real. Can that stop you? No. Because there's something in us, and I'm going to say this more generally, there's something in us, in our minds, that's weak, that needs help. And it's, it's through the use of our mind, I thought Anne was right on, and, and Kate, and Kate, that he's using his mind to justify what he's doing. I loved Anne's, I loved your tone, Anne. Um, that we use our minds to justify. Once somebody puts up a justification, if let's say you're, it's your child, you're dealing with, I mean, I'm listening to Anne, if I got that right, Anne, you know, or try to respond to one of her kids when something's wrong, and they go, I didn't do anything. What do you do to break, what do you do to break through that when you know that they're going to take that position? And the implications, the dangers, if you don't, because if they stay there, they're in trouble. So Shakespeare's showing us a mind of a, of a mature man, he's a good man, he's a king, but he loses at this moment and the effect of it is the annihilation of the world. He's showing us the power of the rational mind to annihilate the world and make it over into what he wants. The claim I'm making is that's modern man. We have lost sense of the world we, all of us, are encouraged to go into the world making it whatever we want. And we're losing touch with nature. And in this play, it will be losing touch with something feminine and creative. As we'll see later. So let me stop. Um, this is the opening of Winter's Tale. I hate doing this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, because and I'm not going to do the rest, but I want to get. I want. I want so badly for you guys to read this. He's going to come in and accuse Hermione. That's where we're going to start because it, it. What her response to me is extraordinary. What she does is one of the most Christ-like moments I've ever seen in my life. What she does. This is her husband. It's the man she loves. He comes in and accuses her of being unfaithful. 
Shortly after that, she's going to give birth to a child. He's going to be born in prison. She. She. He, um, who, um, who was, Karen. It, it goes so to the heart of what Karen said. You know, Marina's, how did you put it? It was wondering. It's not like very much is offered her. I'm not getting your words, but it's not like she had a lot of choices. Right, not many choices. Yeah, Perdita. Think about this. Perdita's born in prison. Here we are again. Here's a young girl, a woman. She's the flowering of a woman. She's born in jail. Shakespeare's vision of things is so much larger than our own. You know, here she's born in jail. Um, Paulina's going to take her to Leontes and say, this is your child. Look at her. Can you, you look at her face. And the king is going to say, not so. Here's the mind making it over. It says, not so. He tells the lords, and he tells the husband, get her out of here. She's a witch. <laughs> Paulina says, if you value your eyes, don't come near me. One of my colleagues at UD said he thought Paulina had lost it. I think my colleague had lost it. I love Paulina. She, when she says, don't come near I'm a colleague. He wants her to be rational. I think she's being rational. She's saying, you come near me. I just love that. <laughs> she's doing what a woman should do under those circumstances. Or a man. None of the lords are fighting their queen or the king. They're all accommodating. They're all going along with him. He's, he's the center of power. They go up against them, him, they lose their jobs. They're not doing what they should do. And a woman is because she's not a part of that court center. She's not a part of that world. She says, you come near me, your eyes are gone. I'll, I laugh at that, my, my colleague saying, she's lost it. God bless her. Um, her husband takes Perdita and takes her to her death. Um, Leontes is going to send an embassy to Apollo's shrine to learn from the gods because he's convinced, and he's convinced that the gods are going to ratify what he says. He sends to the gods to get a confirmation. A court hearing, a court scene takes place, it's in court, where his wife is brought out and the answer from the gods is brought in. And I'm not going to tell you, but the disasters that occur in that moment close the first half of the play and they prepare for everything that goes on in the second half. So in the middle of this play, I mean, if there's any suffering that begins now, it's just going to increase. So you've got to read closely and you've got to read well to find out what happens. I hope I put that well enough to get you all to read this closely. Any last thoughts before we leave? Of not reading well? Where? How do you know she's pregnant? I, I don't remember. I, I, I didn't catch that. I don't know who talked about it or... I have to go back, Melody, and I have to go back to find the lines. When Polixenes says they've been there nine months and we learn that she gives birth, that I, I can't remember. Um, when when uh, In the scene that we're about to look at, um, when, yeah. when uh, um, Leontes accuses her, she'll say, if you look at my condition, you know... Um, one of her handmaidens mentions that she's rounded, and uh, one of them talking to Maximilian says that I'm going to be uh, serving a new friend's pretty soon. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll look for those. Thank you. Yeah. She's pregnant. You can, you can, I mean, I, I'd have to go back, but it's an extraordinary play. 
about the love between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. To me, it's even if the, I mean, you know, to go back to the point that you made, Melody, you know, that Shakespeare de deals with these noble people, kings and queens. I, I just think there's something truly noble, and that's why I made the statement that I did earlier that I think all of us have a nobility. And that's why when I look at this play, I see myself, Suzanne, all of us, that these things happen to all of us, these struggles, these things we fight against, the things that we have to struggle with with each other, you know, are a part of life. They're very real. Um, and Shakespeare takes them to a pitch. And he, he goes to the, he does what Dante, um, he does it with less time, but he takes us to the pitch of something um, always to its point in some depth. So we see these things so clearly, both in the, in the form of sin that they take and in the graces that come to answer them. Extraordinary. Anyway, this is the beginning. Any last thoughts before we stop? It makes me wonder if Leontes uh, is guilty of having an affair. <laughs> Connie, right, right now you don't know how you don't know how close you are to Leontes yourself. No, he's not. Coactive, you are with something that you, Connie. You take a minute after we get off class here. <laughs> oh God, I'm so glad that we can do these things and and deal with some real hard truths and laugh. Yeah, because I I think I mean you know you know me from I mean I think this is all of us. Every work that we've read has shown us something of ourselves. If we're not seeing that, we're not. That's that's part of the gift of you know the because the more deeply we I mean take Dante, the greater the graces. You know, the the Baron, Bishop Baron, has this example in one of his books of of um, dealing with our sins. And he says, the closer you get to the light, he gives the example of a window. When you're looking at it at a distance, you can see these small spots. But the closer you get to that light, the, the bigger and darker the spots are. And he uses that as an image of sainthood. That the, the closer you get to Christ, the more um, the more able you are to see your sins. But you've got this great grace, or you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't be that close. So the purification gets greater, the light gets greater, the sins get greater. Um, we're not meant to turn away, or be afraid, or despair, which is the great sin. But to be glad, and keep moving in that in that way. It's one of the reasons the church has sacraments. I just, I think about a world without them. I, I just, it is so hard for me to imagine. It's like people stopping halfway through their growth. They just don't keep going. Um, anyway, I'm so glad you're here. I'm glad we're doing this. Keep us in your prayers. And for this next week, all of you, um, Suzanne earlier in the day said, She's got tuna. She's got canned. We can put on our fire, which is what we did last year. We, I, I cooked. I rigged up a thing so we could heat water, and you know, we froze for two days. I was, I was a marine for two days, and then I caved and said, "Let's go to our sons." <laughs> God, it just was awful. So she's got tuna. She's making a list of things: tuna, you know, soup, canned beans. 
anyway, take care of yourselves, all of you. I'm saying it seriously. Be careful, you all. Um, be be prudent. This don't be cavalier this week, okay? Especially if you've always yeah. lived in Texas and don't know about snow. That's right. Okay, bless bless your hearts. Keep us in your prayers, please, please, and we'll keep we keep we you in our prayers. See you guys in a week. We will. See you in a Thank week. Thank you. Thank you. Good night, everyone.